Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to Street Soccer. Nick Gieber with you here on Sirius XM211, Dan Patrick Sports and the Sports Byline Broadcast Network. Loads going on. Obviously, all the talk of the town is still the U.S. Women's National Team and their Women's World Cup victory. And the aftermath of that, I'm not talking about the uh, politicization of it and the Republicans taking one side and the Democrats taking the other and they're not going to go to the White House, yada, yada. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. I actually want to talk about the equal pay issue going on because I think if you take any of the topics, any of the issues that most strikes home to the women on the women's national team, it's the concept, the notion of equal pay for equal work. Now, I know this doesn't sound like a lot of fun for a sports show, uh, but it is a really, really important topic because you're going to hear a lot more about this as we go along. So I thought no better guest to join me to talk about this than top football attorney uh, Bob Caldwell of Colossar and Latham. Uh, Bob, thanks for joining me. Nick, it's great to be back. So, Nick, I've got a question for you. you. Bob, and of course... I, I think I've solved the whole problem about how to provide equal pay for the U.S. women's national team. Uh, I see that Sean Longstaff is currently being shopped by Newcastle for 50 million pounds. And I think if they could just donate uh, Longstaff's transfer fee to the cause, we'd be able to fund all of women's soccer for the next few years to come worldwide. Well, actually, Bob, I mean, that that really is a terrifically important point that you make, albeit uh, I know you say that in jest, but it does it does illuminate the big money differences between the men's game at the club level and the women's game at the club level. I mean, that is the equivalent to uh, something that is really just uh, in its infancy and uh, leagues that are both mature and profitable and generating large sums of money uh, across the globe in terms of the men's game. I think, Bob, you know, the women are looking at this, and I think winning the World Cup for them, uh, the extra effort, shall we say, uh, was the fact that they were looking forward to rubbing it in a little bit uh, to U.S. soccer. And, 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 and I know there's been a lot of talk and a lot of press given to the women, and a lot of people, they're rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. Uh, my, I'm, I'm not one of them, but they are rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. But, you know, you have to understand, I think, that the target of most of this effort that they're putting in in terms of uh, trying to get the message out isn't Donald Trump. It isn't the Republicans. It isn't the people that aren't into the LBG. DQ, FYZ stuff. It is Carlos Cordero at U.S. Soccer. Would you not agree with that, Bob? Uh, I might disagree slightly, Nick. Uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with U.S. Soccer, but increasingly it's looking at FIFA. And, and really you only need to look at one statistic to understand why determining what equal pay is is such a difficult thing. FIFA recently reported that in the last Men's World Cup in Russia, it generated revenue, generated revenue of about $5.35 billion. So with what 
Uh, let's take France as an example, being the team that obviously won the tournament. The total prize money um, that, that was for all of the teams in Russia was about 10%, a little less than 10% of that $5.3 billion. And of that, France got less than 10% of the total team prize money. If we look at the women's side, it was estimated that the recent Women's World Cup would generate about $131 million for the tournament and the full four-year cycle that ends in a couple of years. And that makes a huge disparity in, in, in what revenue is generated by the men's and the women's game uh, across the globe. So when you look at what FIFA contributes in terms of prize money, despite the fact that they've indicated they're going to have a massive investment doubling prize money, expanding the field in the next generation of the tournament, it's just difficult to compare $131 million with $5.3 billion. Oh, no, absolutely, Bob. And for the purposes of this discussion today, I actually want to separate these issues because uh, I am um, uh, aligned with the women and their quest for equal pay when it comes to U.S. soccer and what the uh, American soccer infrastructure should be paying them. I am not, however, in agreement, particularly with Megan Rapino, who uh, poo-pooed the uh, billion-dollar investment announced by FIFA uh, for the women's game and said, you know, it should be quadrupled or quintupled or whatever it was, because precisely for that disparity that you just mentioned, there is, I think, a slightly warped picture that many people here in the United States will get about women's soccer because in America women's soccer is a very big thing it is from everything I understand the prime revenue driver for US soccer in terms of sponsorships uh, through Soccer United marketing which in and of itself is an unholy uh, trinity we should talk about that at some point uh, but you know the women's game and the women's team are a large function of the revenue that US soccer derives but as you point out Bob overall globally the women's game is a very small revenue generator for FIFA as a whole so let's put the FIFA argument aside and let's talk about the women and their quest for equal pay from US soccer which I think is an argument that has much uh, much uh, stronger legs to stand on it does but it's it's not even comparing apples to oranges it's comparing you know, apples to bananas. It's just a totally different situation. What, you, what your listeners need to understand is that men generally get the vast, vast, vast majority of the money that they make in a year from their club teams. Uh, we, we see that, you know, David De Gea is on the verge of signing a deal uh, with Man U that's a reported 350 million pounds per week. Um, the guys get a lot of money for their clubs at the highest level. And so when they go, and, and the U.S. men's national team players play for the U.S. national team, they can make, uh, at, at most, if they win and it's against a, a key opponent, they can make, we believe, about 17600 bucks for that result. And if you would look at what a woman's player could get from U.S. soccer, for a comparable result, it's about half of that. So when you look at it that way, it sounds, oh, man, something's, something's wrong here. But there's something that really needs to be put forefront, and that is that U.S. soccer pays the women's national team players a base salary of 100000 per year. That comes from U.S. soccer. Uh, 
and then they tack on another 72500 for playing in the National Women's Soccer League. So U.S. soccer starts our women's national team players. The first 18, they'll get 172500 from U.S. soccer. So when you take all of that together, if a women's national team player appears in 20 friendlies in a year, she could earn as much as about 270000 in salary and bonuses, all paid by U.S. soccer. A men's national team player who suits up for the same 20 friendlies and wins all 20 would get 8000 less from U.S. soccer for the same amount of work. So it's, if, you, if you throw those numbers out there, the women are paid more than the men for you know, an equal result in 20 friendlies a year. Well, Bob, when you talk about the uh, the subsidy that U.S. soccer pays to the uh, Women's Professional Soccer League, you see, when, when we have that argument, and we just have a minute left, so I think we're gonna, I'm going to actually hold this thought till uh, the next segment, but I'm just going to say this so you can think about this during the break. It seems, and especially given, I believe it was Wall Street Journal and New York Times did some very good reporting on this, though, that the women's national soccer team is the prime driver of revenue to U.S. soccer, which in turn goes through the rights package to some and indirectly subsidizes Major League Soccer itself because they are the owner of Soccer United Marketing. So maybe when we look at the equal pay issue, we've got to take that subsidy out because in many respects, in my opinion, the women are also subsidizing Major League Soccer through Soccer United Marketing. These are the discussions. This is what we're going to talk about when we come back. I'm chatting with Bob Caldwell from Colossar and Latham about the sequel pay issue with the U.S. Women's National Team. Be right back after this to continue the discussion. Morgan. Alex Morgan! Here's Mbappe! Soccer. We're talking U.S. Women's National Team, their quest for equal pay. What does it mean? Are they not getting equal pay? If they're not, why? And if they are, why do they keep saying they're not? I'm joined on the guest line by Bob Caldwell from Colossar and Latham, uh, the country's top soccer attorney, the man really in the know. Bob, uh, as I was mentioning before the break, the whole issue of the U.S. women's team being the primary revenue driver for U.S. soccer and, of course, the fact that a lot of that revenue uh, gets driven through the rights package, which belongs, which has been sold to uh, Soccer United Marketing. They're the people that actually market it and make the money, and that, of course, is Major League Soccer. Essentially, the way I look at it, Bob, is that means that they're indirectly subsidizing uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, do, am I looking at this the wrong way? I think they're also indirectly subsidizing the women's league as well. Uh, it, it's hard to pick it apart, and it's a little bit opaque, so it's hard to say. But uh, you're correct that sponsorship and marketing things, um, those are brought in together 
through the men's and the women's team. And so it's very hard for anybody to look at the numbers and say that they are driven by the men or the women. But there, there's a few things that we can say in terms of recent trends. One, the women's jersey from this year, Nike has indicated that that's setting records for any gender. It is the number one selling Nike national team jersey for the U.S. was this year's women's jersey. If we look at television numbers, the television numbers for the women's final this year were staggering. As you probably know, the men's World Cup final is one of the best uh, televised or one of the highest rating uh, events every four years. Uh, but this year, in the United States, in English language, the women's final had 20 times more or higher ratings than last year's men's final, which, which obviously is a little bit skewed because the U.S. Is, is wanting to watch their own team, whereas last year's final between France and Croatia didn't quite have the same attraction over here. Uh, but, but these are two indicators that uh, the, the women's game is really on the uptick. If you look at revenue generated from games, it's pretty close. Um, if you look at uh, 2016 as an example, the women generated about $24 million compared to about $22 million for the men in 2017. It was almost the same. And in 2018, uh, the men's team brought in about a million more in, uh, in game revenue uh, than the women did. So, you know, look, they're, they're close. And if you were to look at any other country in the world, the men's and the women's team are not close in terms of revenue. So this is a real credit to the strength of women's soccer in the United States, in part because we have uh, soccer is for women of all ages the number one sport. Uh, and that's not the case in, in, in other countries. And also, we're pretty doggone successful. The fact that we've got four stars on the jersey now is something that no other country can boast. So the fact that it's even close is really substantial, and uh, it doesn't take a mathematician to know that uh, four stars is greater than zero. So certainly on the pitch, the women have uh, have put them into shame. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, Bob. I mean, and look, look. As I mentioned uh, in my preamble to the show here, uh, I am a big supporter of the equal pay from U.S. soccer. Uh, that goes without saying. I, I can't imagine. And we're going to talk about collective bargaining in a minute. But I mean, I can't imagine, given their victory, uh, that U.S. soccer wouldn't stand up and do the right thing. However, it seems that they're doubling down on their position. Having said that, though, there are a lot of comparisons that are made throughout the media that are a little incorrect. I mean, you talk about uh, revenue generated. Keep in mind, uh, most of the women's games, friendlies, tournament games, etc., are actually played here in the United States. They don't travel nearly as much as the men. So the men may play a similar number of games, but there are fewer games that are played here in the United States. I know uh, Major League pardon me, Soccer United Marketing and U.S. Soccer try everything they can to have as many home games as possible to make that money, hence that awful tournament called the Gold Cup. Uh, but uh, I think if you make that comparison, it, it's, it's, it's not quite an apples-to-apples apples comparison, as most of this, in fact, as we'll find out, 
uh, isn't. But we do have to talk about collective bargaining because, you know, I, I, I um, as I said, I, I support the women totally, but they did negotiate this deal uh, through their union with uh, U.S. soccer, and it seems to me the right time to do this on a normal cycle would be when that collective bargaining agreement expires. What are your thoughts? Well, they've talked a little bit about what will happen the next time there's a renegotiation of the collective bargaining agreement. The men's uh, collective bargaining agreement is done. Uh, they've it's it's been over, uh, I believe, since the start of the year, maybe a little bit earlier than that. And the men are just kind of working in good faith off of the old collective bargaining agreement. Uh, the women, their collective bargaining agreement is is active at the moment, as you said. They, uh, this was their proposal. This is something that they agreed with U.S. Soccer to do, and usually the law will give great deference to um, restrictions in uh, in employment terms when uh, a union collectively bargains on behalf of its members with management. Uh, we see that in a, in a lot of restrictions. For example, uh, in Europe. You uh, don't have clauses in footballers' contracts that say, uh, if we want to trade you to Real Madrid tomorrow, you have to go. Uh, you're, you're not able to renegotiate your salary, and you have to abide by the remaining term of the contract. They don't have that. But in the U.S. sports, obviously we see players are traded all the time, and they have to go, and they have to play for the new team, whether they want to or not and they don't get to tear up the old contract and enter into a new one. And the law says that because you collectively bargained for it, you gave up a right, and, and you did so for safety and security um, moving forward. And so when we look at the women's situation with the CBA, they're buying themselves security. If the NWSL were to have folded, where does that leave everybody? Um, so you have... U.S. soccer coming in and saying, we're going to give you 100000 a year. We're going to give you, and this is important, we're going to give you health care. We're going to give you insurance. And in the case of U.S. soccer, they also give the players maternity and adoption leave. And those are things that the men may have some of those benefits, certainly health care, through their clubs, but not through the national team. And so the women's players go, yeah. go to U.S. soccer and say, hey, in our deal, we want insurance, we want maternity and adoption leave, we want these things that maybe if the league, uh, the domestic league, is on shaky ground, we're not going to have, and so we want some safety. And we have to give some deference to the fact that this is the deal that that team struck with U.S. soccer. Now, I tend to agree with you, and I'd love for it to be equal, absolutely equal. And... And so what I'm starting to hear is, do the 18 or so national team players that are getting that guaranteed 172000 or so, do they at some point say, hey, we're at a point now where we're going to forego subsidies and we just want to be played on an even-steven basis, even basis as the guys? That could happen. So if they want to come up and say, let's tear up the old CBA, Let's negotiate again. We're going to give up our subsidy, but moving forward, we want to have some kind of a, an equal pay system with the men. I do think that U.S. soccer would consider that at some point because when you aggregate all of the benefits that they get from U.S. soccer, 
the two teams aren't paid terribly differently. Yeah, I mean, the problem with that, Bob, is is, is there is a – we're really covering up two pretty tough facts here. Number one is that the women's league, the NWSL, would not survive without the U.S. soccer subsidies that it gets. And that subsidy is, I think, what the top uh, top five na- – the five national team players on each team get paid by either U.S. soccer or the Canadian uh, Federation so that the or league the doesn't have to yep. pay their salaries. If or the Mexican team, if that subsidy is removed, what's ultimately going to happen is all of the top-level women that are currently playing in NWSL will move to the bigger women's leagues in Europe that are now getting well-funded. At least that's how I see it. So it's sort of a a, a bit of a game of, of brinksmanship, but I don't think the women could really lose that subsidy because I'm pretty sure the league would fold. It would be a danger, and 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 just think what a travesty that would be. We're starting to see the U.S. women's national team stars get back to their club teams in the NWSL, and and you know I think in the next game in the next match date, a lot of them will be playing uh, full minutes, and all of those not just young girls that are out at the game, but the boys that are out at the game and the families that are out at those games. Um, what good is it, is it to soccer as a sport? if they can't go to these events in their cities and be inspired by these national heroes. So it's a danger that uh, if if there's an over-ask, what happens to the league? And that could be bad. Uh, you know, the prime driver for sports leagues globally is, of course, television rights money. And there's or not much of it in Major League Soccer and just about none of it in the in the women's professional game. So those are the biggest problems and impediments to, to reaching the pay level that I think the women want. So we'll continue the discussion after the break. We'll talk a little Antoine Griezmann as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Here on Fifth Street Soccer on the Sports Byline Broadcast Network and Dan Patrick Sports Series XM 211. I'm chatting with Bob Caldwell of Colossar and Lathman, who is the top soccer attorney here in the United States, knows a thing or two about the intricacies of the game. Uh, we are talking about the chic will pay issue for the U.S. women's national team. And uh, there's a lot of nuances to this, Bob. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this is going to unfold. What's the next step in this for the women? Well, at some point, they need to sit down with U.S. soccer and have a, uh, a mediation on the lawsuit that's been filed. And it seems like uh, we're hearing that there's some, some momentum in terms of getting that done sooner rather than later. And it seems like Mr. Cordero is, is approaching it uh, with a relatively open mind. And uh, there's certainly more public clamor than there has been in a long time for them to get something done uh, that is as equitable as possible. We see sponsors starting to get into the mix. Uh, obviously, you've seen news in the last couple days of several sponsors uh, donating or, or not really donating but providing big money uh, payments to U.S. soccer to be split among the 23 players on the U.S. women's national team. 
to try and do their part. So whenever you have this kind of situation where you've got litigation hanging over your head, you've got sponsors who are obviously very important uh, to your revenue drivers coming and saying something needs to get done, and what appears to be uh, a receptive audience at U.S. Soccer in the new administration, maybe something gets done. So the next step is for them to negotiate, and it's entirely possible they come out with an extended, renewed, and, and amended collective bargaining agreement that uh, that lines up a little bit better with what's happening on the men's side. Well, I think that's going to happen, Bob, and I think the motivation uh, is there for the women to get something done, and I'll tell you why. I think you saw during this uh, iteration of the Women's World Cup that while the U.S. women's national team is still the 500-pound gorilla in the room, uh, obviously winning uh, the second in a row, the fourth star on the jersey, the momentum seems to be with women's leagues outside of the United States, particularly in Europe, particularly the big European leagues and European clubs, seeing that this is a great opportunity to uh, diversify their revenue stream, to outreach not just uh, to uh, to families rather than just necessarily individual fans, because as you and I know, Bob, uh, you know, going to a football game is uh, in Europe is oftentimes adult entertainment and not necessarily good, clean family fun. And I think the time is now, because I, I think the competition is going to be a lot stiffer four years from now, and I'm not sure uh, that the NWSL is a league that with uh, on which I would necessarily bet enormous money that it's going to uh, flourish and thrive going forwards. I mean, the te- there are no real television numbers, and the attendance numbers are quite paltry. Well, as you know, Nick, there's a deal for a number of the remaining league games to be televised, but there was no rights fee paid by ESPN to the league to cover those games. Essentially, the deal is we'll give you the exposure and uh, and we're not going to pay you for the games. So there definitely has to be uh, a change there for everything to be financially sustainable in the long term. There's also the possibility that at some point leagues around the world start mandating that you have a women's team if you're going to participate in the top league in that country. We've seen in many countries, Germany being one of them, that if you're going to participate in the Bundesliga, you have to have a fully funded academy at certain age groups. There has to be a a residence component to that. You have to have coaches with a certain licensure. And so it's not a, a, a huge step to logically say that at some point the leagues around the world may say, if you're going to participate in the English Premier League, if you're going to participate in MLS, you have to also have a women's team. So that may be a driver where we see some movement in the future, but I'm not quite sure that that's where we're heading just yet. Well, I can promise you that will never happen with Major League Soccer. They don't care what the rest of the world does. They just do their own thing uh, and try to uh, keep all the dosh for themselves because that's uh, how it works. At least that's my opinion. Uh, But uh, let's move on, shall we? Bob, because the big transfer news was uh, 105 or 110 million pound release clause uh, belonging to one Antoine Griezmann at Atletico Madrid have been met by Barcelona, who finally get their man. Uh, but Atletico very upset about it. They're claiming that this release clause was 
basically on a time basis. So uh, the, in uh, in February it was 200 million, in in August it was you know 100 million or whatever it was. They're claiming this deal was done between the player and the club, while the release clause so- stood at over 200 million, and they want the difference. So they on uh, do they have any kind of legal footing here for that, Bob? They may. Obviously, Nick, I'm not a Spanish lawyer. So all of this has to be taken with a grain of salt, and, and I can only put this into the context of, of what we, how we would analyze a similar issue in the U.S. But let's start with this concept of a release clause. There's actually a couple different versions of what we commonly call a release clause. There's a buyout clause and a release clause at their core. Um, Spain, where this particular transfer occurred, there's actually a law in Spain, and it requires that any labor contract give the employee an opportunity to pay a sum of money to terminate the contract early. And so it's not unique to soccer in Spain. It's something that soccer players get the same rights as other employees. And in theory, it is the player's um, opportunity to buy out their own contract. In practice, it's usually the purchasing team that gives the money to the player to buy out their contract so that they're essentially then a free agent. Um, In England, the law is completely different. So there are some release clauses in English contracts. They're not used as often. Uh, Where we really see this happening is in Spain. So we're in Spain now. We're talking about Griezmann going from Atletico to Barcelona, and he had a contract that had a buyout clause that earlier in this year, through June 1st, was set at 225 million U.S. dollars. So if he wanted to buy out his contract, let's say during the January transfer window, he would have had to have paid his own club 225 million. Then the club has no say in the matter. He's out of that contract. He's immediately a free agent. In his contract with uh, Atletico, he had a, a, a clause that said that the release clause, the buyout clause, would drop to 135 million U.S. dollars starting on June 1st. So what this dispute is all about is that uh, Barcelona waits until July and says, hey, we have a new player. And, and they send their lawyers down to the league office in Madrid with a, a big whopping cashier's check for 135 million U.S. bucks and tender that, and suddenly they claim Griezmann is a free agent and they just signed him. What Atletico is saying is, this didn't happen in June or July when the release clause was at 135. That effectively, back in March, early March, Griezmann and Barcelona, and they claim to have evidence of this, that Griezmann and Barcelona agreed on personal terms in March, outside of the transfer window, in the middle of the season. They claim that Barcelona had an agreement that after the season was over, They'd send the check down to the league office, they'd pay the release clause, and he would be their player. And so the, the claim would be that it was a breach of and a termination of his contract with Atletico back in March, and that the damages for a breach were a, a, a huge increase of $90 million more back on that date than it was now. So where's this going to go? I, I'm not sure. 
my best guess is it gives Atletico a little bit of uh, an opportunity to lodge a claim and maybe work something out with Barcelona to get a slightly higher transfer fee than the buyout clause. But it would be really interesting if the clubs couldn't come to an agreement and this had to be decided by the league or even at some point by FIFA or the Court of Arbitration of Sport. Oh, it's a fascinating topic, and we're going to be following this story. Of course, the big clubs, Barcelona, Madrid, United, City, uh, you know, they're all, they have all been accused of tapping up players. This is really what that means in its purest form, and uh, if they have evidence, it's going to be fascinating to see how this one unfolds. Uh, Bob, let's move from the legal to the sporting side, shall we? Uh, let's talk about the transfer market. I know you are a very big fan of what goes on in the Bundesliga, but I wanted to get your take on Tottenham Hotspur because we're very excited about Daniel Levy shelling out 70, 71 million for uh, Ndombele and Jack Clark. But now it seems uh, Kieran Trippier is gone, Danny Rose is gone. Uh, uh, they can't unload Ericsson. They've been trying to do that, but looks like that's not going to happen. So it looks like Spurs fans who were very excited about these two additions, uh, are now going to be a bit disappointed because it looks like the team is being sold off to make these acquisitions. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Well, I think it's it's certainly an interesting time to be a Spurs fan. Uh, when when was the first or when was the last player they signed before this transfer window? Wasn't it about eighteen months earlier? Yeah, it was. That, yes, it was yes, I mean, it, it just they've they been so dormant the in window. in the market. But um, it, it's interesting. It, as you know, we've, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, I've followed the evil empire since I was a little kid. I'm a United fan, and uh, United have a completely different problem. As soon as they make it known in the world they're interested in a player, any 10 million pound player suddenly becomes a 65 million pound player. Um, yeah. and, and when we look at Tottenham, I think they're starting to get a little bit of a taste of their own money, and it's going to be interesting to see how Levy progresses in the transfer market. He's notoriously one of the toughest guys when it comes to selling players. And and so, you know, he may be a good businessman, but I think there's a whole bunch of clubs that are waiting to get one back on him. So, you know, if he's interested in any of the clubs he's uh, he's gouged over the last couple of years, it'll be very interesting to see if they start doing the same for for him, but it, look, if if I'm a Spurs fan, I have to be excited that I had the core of a team that got so far in the last season uh, and was and was so close to greatness. And I hate to see it broken up, but you know that's kind of the cycle. We we see that here in the U.S. sports a lot more because salary cap causes teams to break up. Um, financial fair play rules in in Europe are something that are kind of like salary caps but much softer and they just don't have the same impact on breaking up a team but after a while people want new challenges so um, it, it's going to be interesting for me to see if Ericsson's able to land somewhere some of the places he may have uh, landed and this is really only a limited number of teams that could pay what Levy's going to want for him uh, and what he's going to want in salary they're already finding their own players, uh, and so the market's tightening. It'd be very interesting to see if Erickson's able to get the move that he wants, but we're late enough in the transfer window. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he may be at, uh, at the new White Hart Lane for a little bit longer. Well, apparently uh, Atletico say they're looking for him, and we know they have some money now. Uh, a couple of other stories, and Bob, unfortunately we don't have much time left. 
uh, Arsenal, they've got to sign someone, but they are apparently looking uh, the very exciting uh, young player at Gremio Everton, who was a top scorer in the Copa America. That's awesome stuff. And, uh, of course, the uh, Harry Maguire discussion continues uh, with no resolution in sight. Uh, Bob Caldwell, always a pleasure. All right, cheers. There's uh, Bob Caldwell of Colossar and Latham. You can find him on Twitter at CaldwellESQ. Man knows an awful lot about the game. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, look him up on Twitter. He likes to respond. All right, I'll be right back after this. Fifth Street Soccer. Back. I'd like to thank my guest for the last hour, Bob Caldwell from Colossar and Latham, uh, big law firm here in Las Vegas. Bob is uh, just about the only American ever to uh, be invited and graduate from the FIFA, probably the UEFA Law Program, uh, which is the uh, obviously the European uh, soccer authorities. Uh, Bob is an absolute expert on all things to do with soccer and the law. Interesting times we live in, obviously, with the U.S. women's national team. Tomorrow, I will be rejoined by my co-host, Kartik Krishnaya. We're going to talk about some of this absolutely unbelievable politicization of the, uh, of the U.S. women's national team's uh, victory at the World Cup. And, um, uh, you know, there's a uh, talk radio host who's a little bit on the right named Ben Shapiro, had some unbelievable things to say. We're going to talk about this and try to focus in and find out really what is the drivers here what it is that is rubbing everybody the wrong way, because there is a large backlash developing against the U.S. women for their victory at the World Cup, not from not from uh, this show, not from Kartik or myself. We're big supporters of the team and their achievements and their accomplishments, uh, but uh, there is a, another side to uh, the opinions about this, and we're going to look at some of those and have a real frank and in-depth discussion about it here tomorrow. Of course, the transfer markets are hot and heavy and rolling. Uh, let's continue to look at Arsenal. And by the way, I have to ask Arsenal fans, so you have a great stadium, but you got a crappy club. Was it worth the trade-off? Would you rather have some titles, some silverware, some Champions League, and be at Highbury, or would you like to be at the Emirates and have... Hmm, TT, it's up to you. Love to hear from you. Find me on Twitter at Nick Gieber or at Fifth Street Sports. And once again, I will be back on the air with you tomorrow at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern, which is where you'll find me each and every weeknight right here on the Sports Byline Broadcast Network and Sirius XM 211, Dan Patrick Sports. Until tomorrow, have a great night. Cheers. Hi, this is Ron Barr. If you like insightful, interesting sports talk and interviews with the biggest names in sports, then join us for Sports Byline USA coming up next. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.